Welcome to the Deep Dark Podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Dark. The goal of this podcast is to raise awareness of the countless unsolved murders and missing persons cases out there. This is episode number one, the Oakland County Child Killer. If you grew up in Michigan, you've almost certainly heard of the Oakland County Child Killer. Whether you're already familiar with the case or not, you're going to want to listen closely. It's a long, winding story with multiple victims, a few interesting suspects, and lots of dead ends. I chose the Oakland County Child Killer as my first episode for three reasons. First, I grew up in Metro Detroit. I know the area. Second, there's forensic evidence, including DNA. Finally, and most importantly, there is a ton of primary source material out there. It comes from a FOIA request filed by the surviving family members of the final known victim. If you're not familiar with that term, FOIA is the Freedom of Information Act. It basically requires the government to share a reasonable amount of information with the public. In writing this episode, I tried my best to rely on primary source material whenever it was available. That includes original police reports, lab reports, police memos, and other documents that are part of that 4,000-page FOIA release. That's a ton of documentation, but it's only a drop in the bucket compared to what the police have. They've got over 400,000 pages. Here's the frustrating part. Sometimes these primary source documents contradict each other. This case involved several different police jurisdictions over the years, and they weren't always eager to share information. A lot of high-profile murder cases have unexplained elements, odd coincidences, and inconsistencies in the official narrative. This case is no exception. Whenever it's unclear, I try to provide both versions of the truth. Here's what I didn't use. Other podcasts, Wikipedia, books written about the case, blogs, etc. So let's get to it. If you're familiar with the case already, you've probably heard that the killer drove a blue gremlin. That might not be correct. When you dig into the facts, there are multiple indications that it was probably a blue Pontiac Tempest or a Buick Skylark, not a gremlin. Another rumor that I've heard over and over is that the killer bathed the victims and washed their clothing. This has been exaggerated quite a bit. It's true that the fourth victim did appear to be exceptionally clean. It was noted by the pathologist who performed his autopsy. Some of the police back in the 70s thought that maybe the killer had some sort of crazy compulsion for cleanliness. I suppose that's possible, but I think it's much more likely that the killer was becoming increasingly concerned about being caught and made an effort to minimize any forensic evidence that he left behind. In any event, whatever the motivation was, the killer did not succeed. There's actually a lot of physical evidence, including fingerprints and DNA. The final rumor that I've heard is that the victims were posed as if they were on display at a funeral. I haven't seen anything in the official files to support this. We have to remember that this case took place back in the 70s. It was a different time. There were no cell phones. Parents wouldn't think anything of sending their 10-year-old to the store to pick up a gallon of milk or a carton of eggs. We can't apply today's norms. It's just not the same. None of the family members of the victims did anything wrong, and they have no blame whatsoever for what happened. We also have to remember that police tactics and forensic science have made huge advances since the 70s. Back then, missing kids were often dismissed as runaways. Police didn't know about DNA, let alone how to store evidence so that DNA could be retrieved from it decades later. If you've read about this case on the internet, 
you may have heard it called the babysitter killer case. Some people believe it's because the victims were cared for and held for a period of time. I don't think that's the origin of the name. I think it actually comes from a series of murders that occurred just before the confirmed victims of the Oakland County child killer. Four girls were murdered in suburban Detroit within a very short period of time. Two of them were babysitting when they were murdered. There was talk of a babysitter killer, as in someone killing babysitters. Before any of these early cases had been solved, the police and the public thought it might be the same killer. All four of the confirmed cases that we're going to talk about originate in Oakland County, Michigan. Oakland County is just north of Detroit, across the infamous Eight Mile Road. It's an overall wealthy county, but it's also somewhat diverse. You may have heard that it's an elite community. That's not completely true. Pontiac has one of the highest crime rates in the state, and it's in Oakland County. In fact, the first confirmed victim was actually abducted from a blue-collar community. So before we talk about the confirmed cases, let's talk about some of those other murders I mentioned. On New Year's Eve 1975, 16-year-old Judy Farrow was babysitting for a neighbor in Redford Township. She called her parents around midnight and set the child off to bed. At 3 a.m., the parents came home to find the babysitter gone, but her winter coat was still there. A few hours later, her body was found in a nearby park. She was fully clothed and lying face down in the snow. She had been beaten and shot. This murder was pretty quickly attributed to a 19-year-old neighbor kid named Gary Pervinkler. Pervinkler killed himself before he could be questioned or caught. He could not have been the Oakland County child killer, because he was found dead before the second official victim was even abducted. Just a couple of weeks later, on January 15th, 16-year-old Cynthia Kadju was walking home from a friend's house when she disappeared. This was in Roseville. Her body was found a few hours later in Bloomfield Township. She had been raped and bludgeoned to death. Two men were later charged in her murder. Raymond Heinrich and Robert Anglin were said to have abducted her, held her at a motorcycle club in Detroit with the assistance of a third man, sexually assaulted her, and then dumped her body in Oakland County. Investigators don't think these guys were involved in the Oakland County child killer case, but the available reports don't say why. Three days later, on January 19th, we have 14-year-old Sheila Srock babysitting at a home in Birmingham. She was surprised at about 8.20 p.m. by a burglar who had just come from breaking into three other homes in the neighborhood with a pry bar and a screwdriver. He raped and murdered her. A neighbor who was shoveling snow from his roof saw the whole thing. The killer stole a revolver and some jewelry from the house before mixing in with the crowd who had started gathering outside because they heard gunshots. He asked a few of the neighbors what was going on before calmly hopping into a 1967 Cadillac and driving away. 43-year-old Oliver Andrews, who was a notorious burglar, was later convicted of the crime. Seven months later, on August 7th, 13-year-old Jane Louise Allen was apparently hitchhiking her way home from Pontiac to Royal Oak. Her body was found in the Great Miami River in Miamisburg, Ohio. Her hands had been tied behind her back using strips of cloth from a torn t-shirt that was knotted every few inches. I couldn't find her official autopsy report, but newspaper articles say that she was killed by carbon monoxide poisoning. It was suspected that she may have been held in the trunk of a car. This case has gone unsolved. Now we'll move on to the confirmed victims of the Oakland County child killer. 
Twelve-year-old Mark Stebbins lived with his mother and brother in Ferndale. Ferndale is a blue-collar community that borders directly on the city of Detroit. On Sunday, February 15, 1976, the three Stebbins family members were spending the afternoon at the American Legion Hall at the corner of Nine Mile Road and Woodward Avenue, which was less than one mile from their home. At about 1.30 p.m., Mark wanted to go home to watch a movie on TV. His mother reluctantly allowed him to walk home alone. Mark never made it home. When his older brother returned home later that day, Mark was nowhere to be found. His mother was concerned because he had never been unaccounted for. She called police to report him missing at 11 p.m. that evening. Police and volunteers searched the area, but nothing was found. Four days later, on Thursday, February 19th, at 11.45 a.m., a man in Southfield left his office on foot to visit a nearby drugstore. He noticed something odd in the northeast corner of the parking lot of the Fairfield Plaza office building. He initially thought it was a mannequin. Upon closer inspection, he recognized that it was the body of a young boy. He immediately went back into his office and called Southfield Police. Another man reported that he had walked his dog in the same parking lot earlier that day at 9.30 a.m., and he saw nothing unusual. The dog was apparently on a 20-foot leash and didn't notice the body either. Police believe that Mark's body may have been placed in the parking lot sometime between 9.30 a.m. and 11.45 a.m. that morning. A witness described seeing a small Pontiac or Buick car in the parking lot. Police arrived at the scene and began their investigation into Mark's death. He was fully dressed in the same clothing he was wearing when he disappeared. His eyes and mouth appeared to have been closed by the killer. Unfortunately, a dirty blanket had been placed on Mark's body by the police. The body was removed from the scene and taken to a police facility where it could be processed for evidence. Several human hairs, animal hairs, and fibers were collected. Some of these hairs and fibers may have originated from the blanket rather than from the killer. Of the animal hairs, some were identified as rodent hairs, which probably came from the parking lot. Others were identified as white dog hairs. The hood of his jacket had been pulled up over his head. An autopsy the following day indicated that Mark died from asphyxia due to smothering. There was discoloration on his wrists and ankles, leading to a lot of speculation that he had been bound. To be clear, the medical examiner didn't conclude whether Mark was bound. There was also discoloration around his neck, but in this case, the medical examiner decided it was most likely an impression left by his jacket. There were two crusted lacerations present on the scalp, and two small nicks in the skull underneath those lacerations. This isn't mentioned in the autopsy, but a supplemental paper in the case file says that no blood was found in Mark's hair or on his clothing. A more detailed lab report shows that Mark's sweatshirt did have some small blood stains near the neck, which means he was probably wearing it when he received the head wounds. It was otherwise clean, as were his jeans. His underwear and t-shirt were heavily soiled. If it wasn't for the blood on the sweatshirt, this could indicate that the clothing had been washed after the wound was inflicted. I think it's more likely that Mark was held captive wearing only his underwear and t-shirt. The same page in the case file that says no blood was found describes the lacerations as being in the shape of a deer hoof print. This reminds me of the type of wound that might be created by striking someone with the barrel of a double-barrel shotgun. There was also evidence that Mark was ill at the time of his death as the medical examiner noted acute pulmonary congestion and edema. The anal orifice was widely dilated, which means that he had been raped. 
17 latent prints were lifted, but it's unclear where these prints were found and whether they were left by the killer. A smear of blue paint of unknown origin was found on one of his boots. A prayer card from Mark's funeral was found in the same parking lot where the body was discovered one week earlier. This was considered by the police to be highly suspicious, and it was collected as evidence. It was examined for latent prints, but it's unclear whether any were found. Is it possible that Mark's killer visited the funeral? Despite a $5,000 cash reward being offered to the public, the police were not able to develop any serious suspects. Ten months later, on Wednesday, December 22nd, in Royal Oak, 12-year-old Jill Robinson got into an argument with her mother over household chores. Jill packed some clothing, a blanket, and books into a backpack. She left on her bicycle. We don't know for sure where she was headed, but her mother thought that she was probably heading to her father's house in nearby Birmingham, because that's what she had done in the past when she was upset. Jill was reported missing at 11.30 p.m. that same evening. Four days later, at about 8.45 a.m., on Sunday, December 26th, a motorist discovered her body on the shoulder of busy I-75. She had suffered a 12-gauge shotgun blast to the face. She was wearing her backpack and the same clothing as when she disappeared. A report from September of 78 shows that a witness reported seeing a 1967 Pontiac Tempest with primer spots and a broken left taillight on the shoulder of the freeway at 3.30 a.m. that morning. A report from the 90s, written by a retired investigator, says the car was actually a 1971 Pontiac Le Mans with an eight-cylinder engine. I think the investigator simply recalled the car incorrectly, as I saw no mention of a Le Mans in the reports from the 70s. It's often said that her body was found within sight of the Troy Police Department. The primary source documents don't explicitly state that, but the police station is indeed nearby. So it's plausible. Maybe the killer was trying to taunt the police. Her official cause of death is listed as shock and hemorrhage due to shotgun wound of head. She had to be identified using dental records. Some have speculated that perhaps Jill was already deceased when shot. The theory is that something might have occurred when the killer placed the body to make him think that perhaps Jill was still alive and he decided to shoot her just to be sure that she was dead. A tampon was discovered to be in use and this was traced back to a box of tampons found in Jill's home. There were no indications of sexual assault. White dog hairs, human hairs, and gold fibers were collected. The novel Little House on the Prairie was missing from Jill's backpack. The killer may have kept this item as a trophy. An unexplained pair of wet underwear, presumably belonging to Jill, was also found in the backpack. Her missing bike was discovered in the parking lot of a commercial building on Woodward Avenue in Royal Oak. We don't know if this was the location of the abduction or if the bike was placed there later. There was an unexplained smear of paint on the bike. Is it possible that the killer struck her bike with his car? The following week, on Sunday, January 2nd, 1977, at 3 p.m., 10-year-old Christine Mihalik was allowed by her mother to walk to the nearby 7-Eleven store in Berkeley. A clerk at the store remembered that Christine had purchased a teen magazine around that same time. From there, she disappeared. 19 days later, on Friday, January 21st, her body was discovered in Franklin by a local mailman. It was placed on a short, dead-end residential side street by the name of Bruce Lane. Cause of death was ruled as asphyxiation due to smothering. Although the body was partially covered in snow, it wasn't completely frozen. 
It was estimated that it had been placed there less than 24 hours earlier. Like Mark Stebbins, her mouth and eyes looked to have been deliberately closed. She was fully dressed, but her pants were tucked into her boots, something which Christine's mother said she never did. The pathologist initially reported finding semen, but this finding was later invalidated by a second pathologist and two lab technicians who re-examined the same prepared slides under a microscope and saw nothing. There were no other indications of sexual assault. Curiously, the autopsy report showed a small amount of carbon monoxide in her blood. Her left cheek and nose area showed signs of being bruised. The knuckle of the little finger on her left hand had a small cut or scrape. Two of the buttons on her shirt were undone. A pair of gold earrings and a beaded necklace were found in the left front pocket of her jeans. It's unclear to me whether these items belong to Christine. A partial latent fingerprint was found on her jacket. While I don't see mention of it in the original reports, a report from 2008 shows that white dog hairs were found. Police found bumper impressions in the nearby snow, probably left by the killer while turning his car around in the street. They photographed the impressions and showed them to the major auto manufacturers. It was narrowed down to a 1964-67 Pontiac Tempest or Buick Skylark. The experts also pointed out that the car had a trailer hitch that was bent, indicating the car was either involved in an accident or maybe experienced a jackknife trailer. This is consistent with the broken taillight that was spotted at the Jill Robinson dump site. Police were initially suspicious of the mail carrier who found Christine's body, but they later excluded him as a suspect. The available reports do not show on what basis he was excluded. 11-year-old Timothy King lived with his parents and three siblings in the upscale community of Birmingham. At 7.40 p.m. on Wednesday, March 16, 1977, he left his home to purchase candy from a nearby drugstore. His sister said that Tim didn't have a skateboard with him. She said that he wasn't very proficient on the skateboard, and she didn't think he would take it to the store. The clerk said that Tim did make it to the drugstore and buy the candy. Like the children before him, Tim disappeared. His parents arrived home just before 9 p.m. to find an empty house. They also saw that Tim's skateboard was missing. This could mean that Tim returned home from the pharmacy and left again with the skateboard, or maybe the sister was just mistaken. The family called police to report him missing at 10.15 p.m. A witness came forward to say that she saw a young boy matching Tim's description speaking to an unidentified man outside the drugstore at 8.30 p.m. that same evening. The witness said that Tim and the man were standing next to a blue AMC gremlin with a white hockey stripe. The witness was able to provide enough of a description to produce a sketch. For whatever reason, the report of the man standing near a blue gremlin was understood by the public and many police officers to mean that the man was driving a blue gremlin. This theory spread like wildfire and is still circulated today. We don't know for sure what type of vehicle the man was driving, if any. Blue gremlins were routinely stopped and searched in Oakland County while Timothy King was missing in the hopes that he could be found alive. Another witness also says that he saw Tim outside the market that evening. This person was hypnotized, and he recalled seeing an older man sitting in a car watching kids, and another man in his 30s standing in the parking lot doing the same. He didn't think the two were together, but he thought the man standing in the parking lot might have been Tim's father. He also provided two possible license plate numbers of the car the man was sitting in. Police no longer use hypnosis because it sometimes causes people to remember things that never actually happened. 
On the evening of Tuesday, March 22, 1977, at 11.15 p.m., police were dispatched to a roadside ditch on Gill Road in Livonia, where the body of Timothy King had been found. Livonia is just on the other side of Eight Mile Road in Wayne County. Like the others, he was found fully dressed in the same clothing he was wearing when he disappeared. His orange skateboard lay on the ground 12 feet away. A pair of nearby residents said the body wasn't there at 7.30 p.m. These same witnesses said they saw a full-size car with wraparound headlights parked nearby at 10.50 p.m. One or two minutes later, the witnesses say, the car left traveling south. Now, the 1964-67 Pontiac Tempest, or Buick Skylark, didn't have wraparound headlights. Neither did the 71 Le Mans. The AMC Gremlin had a yellow light, or reflector, that wrapped around, but that's definitely not a full-size car. The autopsy revealed that Tim had been sexually assaulted. The medical examiner said the body was exceptionally clean, including the fingernails and toenails. The soles of his shoes also looked as if they had been cleaned. Despite this, hair and fiber evidence was recovered. If the killer cleaned the body before transporting it to the dump site, it may have picked up additional fibers in the car during transport. The autopsy also showed that Tim had eaten chicken shortly before his death. This is often believed to be significant, because Tim's parents appeared on TV, pleading for his return. During the appearance, his mother promised Tim his favorite meal, fried chicken, upon his return. Some have speculated that the killer was trying to mock the family by feeding them chicken shortly before his death. Personally, I think it's just as likely that the killer, or killers, asked him what he wanted to eat, and he asked for chicken. There's also no evidence that the chicken was fried. Corn had been eaten about two days prior. Multiple linear abrasions were found near the corner of his mouth and the middle of the lower lip. His tongue and lip also had fresh bite marks from his teeth. There was a small scrape in front of the left earlobe. Indentation and discoloration on the wrists and one ankle suggest binding, but this is not conclusive. We don't know whether he was bound or not. As with Mark Stebbins, there was some evidence that Tim was ill. Time of death was estimated as within six to eight hours of being found. The medical examiner believed that the body had been placed there within two hours of being found. Extensive toxicology tests, including carbon monoxide, were completely negative. The medical examiner mentions in a transcript of the autopsy that Livonia police lifted a beautiful latent print from the body. A police report contradicts this and says no latent prints were found. Footprints in the snow show that the killer didn't walk around to the passenger side or rear of the car. Gold fibers, possibly from carpet, found on Timothy King's outer clothing were consistent with one or more fibers found on Jill Robinson's socks. One hair, possibly a human facial hair, was found on his scrotum. Another hair was found in or near the nose. The medical examiner believed the body had been transported face down. A small, unidentified soap stain was found on the back of one ankle. No stains were found on the underclothes. More recent reports also show that white dog hairs were found. Now you have the facts of the case. For me, several questions come to mind. First of all, were all four victims killed by the same individual? There is some evidence to indicate maybe, including the white dog hairs and the matching carpet fibers. There are a number of similarities between the cases. All four victims had brown hair. They were alone when abducted. There were no witnesses. No screams or struggles were heard. They were between the ages of 10 and 12. 
They were believed to have been abducted not far from Woodward Avenue, which connects Detroit to Pontiac. They were abducted just before or just after a holiday, although that does include Valentine's Day and St. Patrick's Day, which are pretty minor holidays. All four were taken in the winter. Each disappeared on either a Wednesday or a Sunday. They were found in public locations, and the bodies had not been concealed in any way. But there are some dissimilarities, too. We have boys and girls, sexual assault and no sexual assault, smothering and shooting, dump sites on the shoulder of a busy interstate freeway compared to a sparsely populated road. Could one killer really keep a victim for 19 days without detection? Unfortunately, the answer is yes. It has been done before. Look at the case of Sean Hornbeck. That poor kid was kept in an apartment with neighbors on the other side of shared walls for years while his captor worked at a pizzeria during the day, and he was not detected. I think you could make a strong argument either way. Another question is why did the killer leave the bodies where they would be so easily found? That doesn't sound like a killer who doesn't want to get caught. Because it's not required to commit the crime, and it actually makes it more likely that he would be caught, it's considered to be a signature element. Signature elements are based on the fantasies of the offender, and they usually don't change. I've also considered the idea that maybe the killer wasn't really from Metro Detroit, and he was bringing the bodies back to the area to throw police off of his trail. Why did the crimes all occur during the winter? Did the killer have a seasonal job with more free time in the winter? Or a secluded cabin in northern Michigan where he could take the victims when no one else would be around? Were his parents in Florida? So this is when his wife was out of town? Was this the only season that he visited Michigan? What type of occupation did this killer have? Did it help him get away with the crimes, or at least give him the opportunity to search for victims? Police speculated that maybe the killer was in a position of authority, such as a police officer, doctor, or priest. The killer's effort to limit trace evidence, like in the Timothy King case, might suggest that he had at least some knowledge of forensics. Most kids probably wouldn't think twice about going with a police officer if told to do so. Spreading the crimes out over many different jurisdictions could also suggest someone who knew how to stymie an investigation. One witness did report Christine Mihalik leaving the 7-Eleven store in the company of a police officer, but the store clerk didn't remember seeing a police officer. A doctor or priest seems far less likely to me unless all four victims shared the same doctor or priest, and they didn't. The idea of someone walking around in a long white lab coat with a stethoscope or a priest outfit just doesn't sound likely to me. It would attract too much attention. Before we go into the investigation, I want to make one thing clear. Polygraphs are pseudoscience. As far as I'm concerned, the only real benefit of a polygraph is to convince someone to confess. Innocent people routinely fail. Guilty people routinely pass. I give them no credibility whatsoever. It means nothing to me if the police think someone passed or didn't pass a polygraph. So for that reason, I won't discuss the conclusions drawn by the polygraphers. I will say, though, that I'm opposed to anyone being cleared as a suspect based on a polygraph. After the murder of Christine Mihalik, police formed a task force consisting of officers from the six police departments involved, the Oakland County Sheriff's Department, and the Michigan State Police. The task force occupied a former school building and was given $1 million in funding. It operated like its own police department that was dedicated solely to catching the killer. A tip line was established and pleas were made to the public for information, with the offer of a $100,000 reward. 
As a result, thousands of tips were received. Each tip was assigned a tip number, a priority level, low, medium, or high, the name of the person of interest, and the reasons why the tipster thought police should look into that person. All tips were entered into a computerized database. This made it easy to determine whether a particular person of interest had already been investigated and eliminated. Many different leads were pursued, including some long-shot strategies. There was an attempt made to interview every single blue gremlin owner in Oakland County. Known pedophiles were interviewed to see if they knew anything about the crimes or who may have committed them. Police staked out the funerals of some of the victims, looking for anyone who didn't belong. A mannequin was placed where Mark Stebbins' body was found shortly after its discovery, and the parking lot was staked out for a period of time to see if the killer would return to the scene. Police looked at child pornography photos and films around the world to see if the victims appeared in any of them. While DNA analysis wasn't available in the 70s, it was used later in this case. There are two partial DNA profiles that have been detected. These are mitochondrial DNA profiles, which were developed using hair fragments found on the bodies of the victims. The hair found on Mark Stebbins has the same mitochondrial DNA profile as the hair found on Timothy King. A hair found on Christine Mihalik has a different mitochondrial DNA profile. So let's get into the suspects. Gregory Woodard Green grew up in Michigan, but he moved to California in 1970, shortly after graduating from high school. On August 1st, 1974, Green took a 12-year-old member of the Little League baseball team he coached to see a drive-in movie. He gave the kid alcohol, and he sexually assaulted him. The boy fought back. Green choked him into unconsciousness, and then he burned him with cigarettes to see if this kid was still alive. He dumped the kid from his car outside of a hospital. Then he called the hospital from a nearby payphone to say that the boy was outside and he needed help. He said he didn't know the boy, and he had just found him on the street. The victim was in such a stupor that hospital staff thought he had used hallucinogens. Police were able to identify Green, and they began an investigation. He was arrested immediately. Green confessed to sexually abusing not only this boy, but five or six members of the baseball team. He also confessed to sexually assaulting a six-year-old boy at some point. He said that he had molested kids on about 200 occasions. He was charged with almost 50 counts of criminal sexual conduct. He was sent to Patton State Hospital, a mental health treatment center, on January 31, 1975. He participated in all therapy groups available, and he helped to organize some patient discussion groups. Hospital records show that Green learned to relate to his peers instead of only kids. He became the vice president of the ward government and treasurer of the patient's council. He restored a good relationship with his family, and they wanted him to come back home to Michigan. The hospital agreed. In January 1976, he was placed on probation and released from the hospital. Handwritten notes from Greg Green's polygraph interview show that he returned from California to Flint on February 14, 1976. That's the day before Mark Stebbins was abducted. Once he returned to Michigan, he claimed he was cured of his pedophilia. Within three months, he secretly started coaching another Little League baseball team and molesting more young boys. The Michigan investigation into Green began when an alert middle school principal noticed an adult male hanging around the school and picking up a student. He called the police, who investigated, and they determined that the strange man was Greg Green. Police began looking into Green by January of 77, 
and they found that he had been molesting multiple boys in Michigan. He warned some of his victims that he had choked a boy in California who almost died before he dropped him off at a hospital. He was arrested and charged with criminal sexual conduct. Now, he changed his tune about the mental health treatment he received in California. He said that during his one-year hospital stay, he only met with a psychiatrist for an hour, and he only spent four hours in therapy groups. In his pre-sentencing report dated June 1977, he is quoted as telling an investigator, I do have some information that could alleviate some of the problems in Flint, to show the community how and why kids do get involved. I also think that I could find that person in Detroit. That person in Detroit was the Oakland County child killer. Gregory Green implicated his friend, Christopher Bush, in the murder of Mark Stebbins. This was recorded by the Oakland County Child Killer Task Force via tip number 369. It was categorized as high priority. At the bottom of the tip sheet, it says that Bush was cleared by a polygraph. Tip number 370 was issued by the police themselves against Gregory Green. Police thought he was more of a suspect in the case than a tipster. Green is also listed on the tip sheet as having been cleared by a polygraph. Green drove a 1974 Brown Chevrolet van at the time of his arrest in Michigan. Police searched the van, and they found Polaroid photographs of boys, and two pairs of what were described as child's panties. He was also known to have previously driven a black Chevy Impala and a dark blue Chevy Nova. Tip number 9368 was also on Green. This tip sheet is mostly blank, so I don't know the circumstances of this one. At the bottom, there was a handwritten note, CLR370M. Took me a little while to figure that out, but I believe it's saying that he was previously cleared on tip number 370, although I don't know what the M stands for. Also, the word closed was written, circled, then crossed out. It's undated and categorized as low priority. Police searched for any physical evidence that would help identify Green as the Oakland County child killer. He was ruled out as the contributor of the latent print found on Christine Mihalik's jacket. On June 14, 1977, he was sentenced to life in prison for the criminal sexual conduct charges. Tip number 14753 also came in on Green. Although his middle name, Woodard, is misspelled as Woodward, the tip came from a detective with the Ferndale Police Department on February 13, 1978. Priority was listed as high, but this was crossed out and changed to medium. This tip said that Green looked like one of the sketches. It's true that Green did look a lot like the sketch from the King abduction, but he was already incarcerated when that abduction and murder took place. It couldn't have been him. At the bottom, it's marked cleared. Green died in prison in December of 95, but police hadn't yet given up on considering him to be a suspect. In 2008, they interviewed his former cellmate. He said that Greg had bragged about killing four kids and getting away with it. Green's brother was also interviewed that same year. He said that Greg was bothered that police didn't believe him about Bush being involved in the Oakland County child killer case. The brother also said that after Greg went to prison, he discovered a hidden room in the attic of his home. One of the kids Green molested had described being hidden in that home's attic overnight. The brother gave police a DNA sample, and Gregory Green was excluded as a suspect based on the results. Police began investigating Christopher Bush after Green implicated him in the death of Mark Stebbins. Based on the evidence gathered in the Flint child molestation case, an arrest warrant for third-degree criminal sexual conduct was issued in Bush's name. On January 28, 1977, 
He was placed under arrest at his restaurant in Alma. Officers from the Flint Police, Michigan State Police, Ferndale Police, and Southfield Police Departments were present. Police offered Bush the opportunity to stop by his home and pick up a change of clothes and a toothbrush. This was probably a ploy to search the home. While there, he consented to a search. Police found two shotguns, a pound of marijuana, a suitcase with ropes in it, and another suitcase with pornographic movies of young boys and scrapbooks with cutouts of young boys. Neither of the two shotguns were of the same caliber that was used to kill Jill Robinson. All of the items were confiscated by police. Bush waived his right to remain silent, and he agreed to an interview. He told police that he was born in Pontiac, moved to Huntington Woods, and then back and forth to Europe several times due to his father's job. He attended boarding school in Switzerland. His father, Harold Lee Bush, was a prominent General Motors executive. At the time of his arrest, Bush was managing a restaurant in Alma that his father had purchased for him. The restaurant was about 120 miles away from his parents' home in Bloomfield Township. Chris told police that he was attracted to young boys between the ages of 10 and 15. He was told that Green had implicated him in the murder of Mark Stebbins, but he denied it. Bush said that he had been in England from February 7th through February 14th, 1976, which police were able to verify when they looked at his passport. Mark Stebbins disappeared the following day, on February 15, 1976. While Christopher Bush and Gregory Green both returned to Michigan on February 14th, the day before the first victim disappeared, it's not clear to me whether they knew each other at that time. Bush admitted to police that he and Green fantasized about kidnapping a young boy, tying him up, and sexually abusing him. He described Green as violent, telling police that he had choked a boy in Flint once. Bush was undoubtedly a serial child molester. He joined multiple chapters of the Big Brothers program, including Berkeley, Alma, and Midland. He molested several of his so-called little brothers. He also molested his own nephew, who said that Bush had even punched him on one occasion. Bush purchased a blue Chevy Vega with a white stripe on the side in January 1976. This vehicle is somewhat similar in appearance to an AMC Gremlin, like the witness described in the Timothy King case. An interesting tidbit of info that police were able to corroborate is that Bush had engaged in a sexual relationship with an adult woman shortly before his arrest. This could be relevant because two of the victims were female. It's been pointed out that during questioning, Bush named several locations that were involved in the Oakland County child killer case. Now, since I haven't seen a transcript of the interview, and because he was being interviewed by the task force, it's possible that he was responding to their specific questions about those locations, rather than volunteering those locations and no other locations. So I don't know if this particular information is especially relevant. In total, Bush was charged with five counts of criminal sexual conduct spread over four counties. He was able to post bail on all charges while the cases progressed through the courts. In Oakland County, he pled guilty to two counts of criminal sexual conduct, and he was sentenced to two years of probation. Bush had access to a family cabin on S. Lake near Hillman. He's known to have taken young boys to the cabin for the purposes of having snowmobile parties and molesting them. This cabin could be where the Oakland County child killer victims were kept. A report from 2008 says that an original investigator searched the cabin, but didn't find any signs that someone had been held against their will. On March 7, 1977, a statement was given to police by someone associated with a convenience store near S. Lake. This person said that he or she last saw Chris Bush 
and the last weekend of February 77. The witness also said that Bush was usually in the company of young boys. Police in the area received an anonymous call on March 19, 1977, from a woman who spotted Bush in the area with two minor boys. This is within the time span that Timothy King was missing. However, a follow-up report says the boys were approximately 16 and 18 years old. On January 28, 1977, Bush was given a polygraph exam by the Michigan State Police. In the pre-polygraph interview, Bush admitted to being attracted to boys between the ages of 12 and 13. He admitted to having what he called affairs with young boys. He denied knowing or killing Mark Stebbins. He also said that upon returning from England, he stayed at his parents' home in Bloomfield Township for a couple of days. After the charges, Bush was again living with his parents in Bloomfield Township. He was working as a chef at the Franklin Club Apartments until November 4, 1978. He quit to pursue a job at the Franklin Terrace Apartments. He was supposed to start the new job on November 20th. On that day, November 20th, police were called to the Bush family home. The Bush's housekeeper was unable to gain access to the home. She was concerned that something was wrong. On this day, both of his parents were in England visiting Chris's older brother. Once inside, the police found Christopher Bush dead of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. The firearm was a 22 caliber long rifle. At the scene of the suicide, police discovered several items of interest. There were two dogs in the home, including a white Welsh terrier named Tabitha. On his bedroom wall, there was a pencil drawing of a young boy wearing a jacket with a hood drawn up who looked to be screaming in pain. The kid in the drawing looks a lot like Mark Stebbins. On the floor of his gold-carpeted bedroom closet, there was a pile of ropes. A casing of a spent shotgun shell sat on the dresser, saved for some reason. Police considered the findings suspicious, and they notified the Oakland County Child Killer Task Force. Gunshot residue tests did not find sufficient levels of antimony, an element commonly found in gunshot residue, but the report says that no conclusions could be made either way as to whether Bush did or did not fire the gun himself. One latent print was found on the box of ammo that did match Bush. His blood alcohol level was found to be 0.41%, which is extremely high, but this number might have been artificially increased by the decomposition that had taken place by the time the body was found. A co-worker from the Franklin Club Apartments told police that Bush had recently talked about suicide. He also showed her his wrists, which he said showed scars from a failed suicide attempt two years earlier. She thought he was joking. The Oakland County Child Killer Task Force disbanded shortly after the death of Bush. This has been used as evidence to support the notion that police were satisfied that Christopher Bush was the Oakland County Child Killer. I don't believe that's the case. The Oakland Press published an article on September 24, 1978, about two months before Bush's death, indicating that the task force's funding had expired and it would be disbanded by December. Ultimately, nothing came from the investigation of Bush until decades later. A friend of the King family named Patrick Coffey was inspired to become a polygrapher because of what had happened to Timothy King. As an adult, Coffey was attending a polygrapher's conference in Las Vegas. He met Larry Wasser, another polygrapher. When Coffey explained why he became a polygrapher, Wasser allegedly revealed that he knew the identity of the Oakland County child killer. According to Coffey, Wasser claimed to have polygraphed him in an unrelated case. 
Coffey says that Wasser told him this guy confessed to being the killer. Coffey contacted the King family to share this information. They, in turn, contacted Detective Corey Williams of the Livonia Police Department. Initially, Larry Wasser denied making these admissions, but later he revealed some identifying information, including the name of the deceased attorney who hired him for the polygraph. Using the clues provided by Wasser, Detective Williams determined the individual in question to be Christopher Bush. In the end, though, the possible hearsay confession, even if it did take place, doesn't prove that Bush killed anyone. In 2008, a search warrant was executed at the former home of Christopher Bush. Police were looking for fibers, animal hairs, or anything else that might tie him to the Oakland County child killer case. The FOIA documents don't show what, if anything, was found. The shotgun shell found at the suicide scene once again became an item of interest in the modern-day investigation. Police wanted to know if the shell was a 12-gauge, like that used in the murder of Jill Robinson. The original police reports didn't identify the caliber, and the shell itself was long gone. Police sent crime scene photos to NASA in the hopes that they could improve the image quality well enough to determine the caliber. They were unsuccessful. You can make a very strong circumstantial case against Bush. He was a serial child molester, had displayed violence toward a victim on at least one occasion, fantasized about abducting a boy for the purposes of sexually assaulting him, owned ropes, had a white-haired dog, had gold-colored carpeting, had sexual contact with males and females, reportedly confessed to Larry Wasser, owned a car similar to that described by a witness in the abduction of Timothy King, had a drawing on his bedroom wall that resembled Mark Stebbins, and arrived in Michigan the day before Stebbins' abduction. Also, the killing stopped after his death. But one of the major pieces of forensic evidence in this case is DNA. Christopher Bush is excluded as being the source of either profile. Despite the fact that DNA ruled out Chris Bush, Police still continued to explore the possibility that he might have been involved. They also looked into his friends and relatives. James Vincent Gunnels, or Vince to his friends, was one of the kids that Bush molested while serving in the Big Brothers program. They remained friends even after Bush was convicted of molesting him. Police wanted to test his DNA under the theory that Vince could have been involved in the crime series and may have been used as a lure, an accomplice, or maybe even just to dispose of the bodies. Gunnels denied any involvement and gave police a voluntary DNA sample in 2008. It matched a hair fragment found on Christine Mihalik's shirt. The local media made a major announcement in the case, saying that either Vince or a relative on his mother's side may have been involved. The truth is more complicated. Around 1.03% of the population was also a match. Considering the population of Michigan in 1977, that means over 119,000 other Michigan residents would also be a match. A mitochondrial DNA match is a very weak match. It can really only be used to exclude suspects. It can't be used to identify a particular individual. While Gunnels does have a long criminal history, he's never been convicted of any sex offenses, kidnappings, or murders. In 2012, another major announcement was made. There was a second DNA match. While re-examining evidence in the case, hair fragments found on both Timothy King and Mark Stebbins matched a hair found back in the 70s that was recovered from a vehicle owned by convicted pedophile Arch Sloan. 
Sloan was living in Southfield with his parents at the time of the murders. His name was sent to investigators via a tip from his parole officer back in the 70s. As part of the follow-up, police searched his vehicle and collected tapings from the interior. The tapings revealed both fiber evidence and human hairs. One of the hairs has the same mitochondrial DNA profile as the hairs found on King and Stebbins. The DNA, however, did not match Arch Sloan himself, even though it came from his vehicle. It was theorized that maybe Sloan was either involved in the case or loaned his car to someone who was involved. While this is a possibility, it was another mitochondrial DNA match. This means 100,000 or more other people in Michigan also match. Police held a press conference describing the DNA match and pleaded to the public for tips on who Sloan might have been associated with in the 70s. Ultimately, the contributor of the hair was never identified. Today, Sloan is serving a life sentence on an unrelated criminal sexual conduct conviction. Although he had a horrific history as a child predator, he may have no connection to the Oakland County child killer case. David Norberg is another name that surfaced during the investigation. There's not a lot of primary source material available about Norberg, so most of the following comes from newspaper articles. Police were tipped off to him on at least three occasions for unknown reasons during the original investigation. He was cleared based on an alibi provided by his wife. In 1980, Norberg and his wife moved from Michigan to Wyoming. A year later, he died in a car accident. His wife came forward after his death to tell police that she had lied about his alibi, and she thought her husband was indeed the Oakland County child killer. She also said that she found a cross similar to one that was owned by Christine Mihalik. Christine's mother was shown photos of the cross, but she didn't recognize it. Police also said that Norberg was working while one of the murders took place. Despite the suspicions that he wasn't involved, his body was exhumed in 1999 and a DNA sample was collected. The DNA did not match. Norberg was officially excluded as a suspect. Another suspect that came up in the case was Ted Lamborghini. A different man, Richard Lawson, had been arrested in Ohio. Lawson offered up Lamborghini's name to try to get himself out of trouble with the police. He told police in Ohio that he knew who was responsible for the Michigan snow killings. As a result, Lamborghini was investigated as a suspect. He's a former auto worker who lived in Michigan during the 70s, but he moved to Ohio after retirement. He had denied any involvement in the Oakland County child killer case, but he did confess to being a prolific child molester back in the 70s. He molested boys in the impoverished Cass Corridor section of Detroit. As a result of the investigation, he was convicted of child molestation charges. Police looked into whether Lamborghini had any connection to suspect Christopher Bush. He was a bad guy, but there's just no evidence to link him to the Oakland County child killer case at all. Today, he's serving a life sentence for the crimes that came to light as a result of the Oakland County child killer investigation. Kenneth Bowman was a young victim who was molested by both Bush and Green. He had a lot to say about both of them, although police were skeptical. He told them that Green had once approached him to help kidnap a boy, although they never actually went through with it. He said that both Bush and Green used him as a lure to draw kids to their car. Police considered that Bowman may have been a young and unwitting accomplice, as he was only 13 years old at the time. He said Green once choked him to the point of being unconscious. He identified Timothy King as a boy that Bush once forced him to perform oral sex on. 
He also identified Ted Lamborghini as a man who had randomly picked him up while hitchhiking, molested him, and then stopped by Gregory Green's house, a claim which tied Lamborghini together with Bush and Green. This seemed like a fantastic coincidence. In the end, police decided that Bowman was trying to make the puzzle pieces fit together, and that he was not a reliable witness. Bowman was also excluded as a suspect based on DNA. Richard Lawson wasn't the only police informant who claimed to know the identity of the Oakland County child killer. A woman named Helen Dagner claimed that her friend, John Hastings, was the killer. Helen was an odd character. She was once married to a police officer who had committed suicide on November 20, 1983. She claimed that Hastings said that he, too, had a friend who committed suicide on November 20. Helen believed this friend to be Christopher Bush. Tip number 11517TK was submitted by Helen on June 17, 1977. She claimed that Hastings had confessed to being the killer. The tip was categorized as low priority. In addition to the tip, she also relayed information via telephone conversations, in-person meetings, many pages of handwritten notes, hand-drawn maps, and strange cartoonish drawings. Interestingly, police were able to find a witness who claimed to overhear Hastings confessing to Dagner in graphic detail at a big boy restaurant in Alpena. Police investigated, though, and they noticed that some of the information she provided didn't match with the secret info that was never publicly released. They provided her with some questions to ask Hastings that someone unrelated to the case shouldn't be able to answer correctly. Most, if not all, of the answers that Hastings provided to Helen were incorrect. Hastings denied knowing Bush and Green. Although he and Bush did live in the same neighborhood, police were never able to establish any significant connection between them. When interviewed by police, Hastings said that he had never confessed to being the Oakland County child killer, and he had no idea why Dagner said otherwise. She spent decades desperately trying to convince others of his involvement, even after he was ruled out by a DNA test. Police even considered the idea that maybe Helen's deceased husband was the killer, but this too was ruled out. The suspects mentioned up to this point were definitely not the only suspects looked at in the investigation. Back in the 70s, a prominent psychiatrist named Bruce Danto, who frequently collaborated with the media, had apparently received a letter from someone claiming to know the identity of the killer. The letter writer claimed that his roommate, Frank, was committing the crimes to get revenge on society after fighting in the Vietnam War. The writer arranged to meet with Danto to disclose Frank's identity at a bar in Detroit, but he never showed up. Danto also claimed that Christine Mihalik's body may have been dumped on Bruce Lane as a form of communication with him, Bruce L. Danto. The police actually considered this theory, and they arranged for Danto to make another media appearance, where he described the killer as being like a squirrel, hoping that the next victim would be left on Squirrel Road. They staked out Squirrel Road, but no victims were left there. In 2013, a blue gremlin was discovered buried on former farmland near Flint, and this was investigated. Notorious serial killer John Wayne Gacy was even briefly considered as a suspect, since he was known to have visited Michigan during the 70s, but he was excluded by DNA. A mysterious man, identified only as Bob, came forward with bizarre claims that he knew the identity of the killer, who had committed the crimes in conjunction with Wiccan rituals. The mother of Christine Mihalik was drawn in by Bob. 
she sadly exhausted her life savings to pay for an attorney that Bob recommended. A lawsuit was filed by the attorney seeking $100 million in damages and alleging a conspiracy among law enforcement. The suit was dismissed for lack of evidence. The future of this investigation lies in the DNA evidence. It's the only way that I can see this case ever being solved. After 40 years, it would be very difficult to solve the case, even if a suspect confessed today. Unless that person had kept some sort of souvenir from the crimes that could be positively identified, police would likely doubt the veracity of any confession. If the killer is alive today, he would likely be in his 70s or 80s. The clock is definitely running out if the killer is ever to be brought to justice for these murders. Genetic genealogy is a new investigative technique that was developed in 2018. It brought an end to the 40-year hunt for the Golden State Killer in California. This process involves uploading the unidentified DNA profile to public databases such as GEDmatch. GEDmatch will generate a list of names of people who may be related to the donor. From there, a genealogist builds an entire family tree from the list of names. The list is narrowed by gender, physical description, and geography. The promising matches are either asked for a voluntary DNA sample or a surreptitious sample is collected. As of now, the same technique cannot be effectively used to find the Oakland County child killer. It requires a full DNA profile, which we don't have. It's possible that forensic science will one day be able to reprocess the evidence and recover such a sample. Until then, the investigation seems to be at a standstill. If you have any serious information about the identity of the Oakland County child killer, there are two good options. You can call the Michigan State Police tip line at 833-784-9425. If you want to remain anonymous, contact Crime Stoppers at 800-773-2587. If you have the name of a specific person and a clear, logical reason why you believe this person committed the crimes, go ahead and contact them. If you can provide your suspect's date of birth or address, that's even better. Please do not contact the tip lines to share your suggestions on how to solve the case or to ask for updates. This will only make it harder for a genuine tipster with potentially useful information to get through. It's very possible that none of the suspects I mentioned today had anything to do with the case. The name of the real killer may not have even come up yet in the investigation. If that's true, police need your help to identify the perpetrator. If you have a suggestion on which case I should cover next, and tell me about it. Send an email to thedeepdarkpodcast at protonmail.com. I don't want to make a weekly podcast with a basic overview and a cursory amount of research on each case. There are hundreds of those already. I'd like to find more cases with a large amount of primary source material available. I have no delusions of detective grandeur. I don't expect to solve this case, or any other for that matter. But, if I can cover the case, and help to keep it alive in the eyes of the public, maybe it's worthwhile. Thanks for listening.